The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) On spins the wheel, my friends, and on spins the podcast. Welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, uh, your weekly read-along Wheel of Time podcast. I, of course, am one of your hosts, Greg, and I am joined from the tundra of Brighton, Massachusetts. I can't say Massachusetts anymore. That's how cold it is. Tyler. Tyler, what's going on? Uh, nothing. I just feel like I'm back home. I grew up spending most of my winters in either Michigan or Minnesota. So it was actually kind of nice to feel an actual winter. Once again, this was great. (laughs) Uh, I assume that from New Hampshire, you at least have some experience with this kind of weather weren't too overwhelmed. No, I mean, the extreme cold is not what I associate. I I miss the snowy winters, uh, kind of in that regard. Um, but yeah, my family back home in New Hampshire, they they had thermometers naturally clocking like negative 20. And this is southern New Hampshire. This isn't even far up there. And then, um, you know, with the wind chill factor, I, I saw Mount Washington, which they they cheat because it's a giant mountain in northern New Hampshire, but right. they clocked a North American wind chill record of negative 104. So uh, crazy times. Speaking of cold action, I, I got nothing. Uh, let's dive right back into our uh, reading. Uh, so we are, as we hope listeners know, uh, getting our way underway into the great hunt. And I, I really feel like we're finally actually moving into the great hunt today. So today we are discussing chapter 10, the hunt begins and chapter 11 glimmers of the pattern Two new chapters, two rand chapters. What is this? Eye of the world. Uh, and, yeah. uh, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on them as we begin. Uh, we were just saying, uh, that we don't have a, a visual discussion, haven't for a little while, and uh, we'll look forward to the next one whenever we get a new chapter icon or presumably a classic book cover of, at some point, which I'm sure you'll keep us up to date on. Uh, yeah, I believe next week we will have some visual media for ill-advised discussion and an exciting time it will be. Um, let's begin with chapter 10, The Hunt Begins. Um, so the group sets out after the Dark Friends and the Trollocs. Um, Ingtar sets an extremely fast pace, so much so that the animals start to kind of flag and eventually Uno kind of tries to insist that they slow down and Ingtar kind of shuts him down. And at that point, Uno gives Rand kind of an odd look. Um, fairly soon after this, Ingtar relents and eventually gives in and kind of alternates between going quickly and going slowly. Um, eventually, they settle in for the night. Rand goes to his saddlebags to try to find something less fancy to wear and finds that Moraine has replaced all of his clothes with things that are just as fancy as what he is 
currently wearing. Um, at this point, um, Ingtar is kind of teasing him about the way that he's dressed. And Ingtar even says, like, you don't dress like a shepherd. And at this point, Matt and Perrin kind of grudgingly back him up and say, no, he's from the Two Rivers. And then we get a fairly long discussion of Rand's um, potential heritage and what he looks like and whether he is an Aiel or from the Two Rivers and what have you. Um, eventually, they make their way for the next few days. And the odd thing that is happening is the direction they are traveling, where every morning uh, the path they are following breaks to the east and then seemingly an hour or two later starts going to the south. Um, eventually, they make their way to the River Aranin, where there is a... Uh, village along the river um the soldiers scout across the river and eventually find that while there is no trap there are two individuals who have been skinned alive and it appears that they are the two people who betrayed faldara the two shinarans um ingtar insists that they be given a proper burial we learn a little bit about shinaran burial customs and then um Ingtar basically is the only one who seems to give a blessing to these two supposed traitors. Um, the group then makes their way to a second village. Um, and this village um, is also abandoned. Someone also sees a woman in a window. And then very quickly, Rand enters a room where something weird and wrong happens. Things start to loop, and we see the same scene multiple times, and flies multiply everywhere. And just as suddenly as it started, it ends, and then Rand um, returns. Um, and eventually, he arrives and realizes that something even darker than in the previous village has happened. Uh, this is where they find a fade that has been staked to a bunch of stuff and that seems bad um that is the end of the chapter lots of things happen i'll be honest rand rides around on a horse and observes where they're going is my <laughs> least favorite kind of chapter uh what was your reaction to this it did feel like uh like blair witch project or something like this is the found footage of uh the expedition for the great horn uh and we're, we'll go through this yeah, um, you know, as you've formulated before, when it's plot heavy, there's not necessarily a ton to talk about here. But I did think, you know, our main goal seems, in my opinion, to be to to meet the uh, the crew, right? To get yeah. to know Ingtar and Hurin and Uno and Massima a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and kind of fill in some details on who else is here, which, you know, is kind of an essential, let's build out the cast a little bit. I found myself saying like, well, who are the red shirts? And then there are just like nameless uh, people yeah. here as well. And and that's who, who we end up losing. So um, yeah, not, not my, my, uh, you know, most favorite chapter of all, not the most exciting, but you know, I would say what I latched onto most is I assume the point, which is to show us how different things are just this very small time later. Um, you know, this isn't exactly the country we traversed before, but things have already changed significantly and it's not, quiet little agrarian villages and we can meet farmers and you know pastors and so on it's it's these towns are empty there's violence there's really dark things that have happened and so that's kind of uh what i took away as the main point of this yeah and i think for me what was really interesting is seeing these sequences from the perspective of shinar and soldiers who kind of pride themselves in protecting the countryside and protecting this area and so 
it's interesting to see them kind of arriving, having already failed twice, right? They are both chasing after the horn that they already had and lost, and they are going through villages that have been ransacked by the very Trollocs they're supposed to protect them from. And so I think there's something very interesting to these sequences of meeting all of these soldiers in a moment where they are all probably pretty close to their lowest, right? This has been not a great couple of months in Shinar. And so I think bringing what you're saying about kind of introducing the characters along top of the the point in their lives that we're at, I think is is an interesting strategy by Robert Jordan, right? Teach us who these characters are by dropping them in the middle of a, a pretty tense moment for all of them. Yeah, and and I think within the pressure cooker of that tense moment, we see kind of a truer version of themselves. Like you were noting, it it stood out that Uno seems to have some Aiel prejudice, if I yeah. read that correctly. And um, there's there's a little bit of a theme running through there. Kind of at that same moment, they mentioned how the Trollocs aren't all that different from us, and so on. There's this theme of like, yeah, you can't really just categorize these peoples as easily as you might want to, dear reader, right? It's it's not yeah. that kind of fantasy world. I will cover your cough very ineffectively. Um, I think as you're talking about like, can we correctly categorize people? The moment that immediately jumps to my mind is about halfway through the chapter, but I don't mind jumping around when we don't have a whole lot of things to latch on to. Um, and that is Ingtar's reaction to finding the two Shinarans who have been killed, right? These are presumably the traitors by all accounts. They are the ones who um, opened the gate and let Padden Fane out of the dungeon. Um, the only indication that we have to even remotely support the idea that they aren't the only traitors is that someone shot an arrow at Rand slash the Amerlin. Um, and so the fact that Ingtar both insists that they are not necessarily dark friends, that there isn't proof, and then he is the only one who is willing to give the Shinaran funeral rites to both of them, I think that kind of highlights what you're talking about in terms of like how well do we know these characters we've now got is one of them a traitor? We've also mm -hmm. got are the people who we thought were traitors really on the light side? How is Ingtar thinking about all of these different roles? And then obviously in the next chapter, we add on top of that Rand's very odd place in the structure of the military. I think there's lots of these things kind of being layered on top. So I guess I'm curious um, what stood out to you in that Ingtar moment and whether there are any other things about kind of the Shinarans that stood out as odd in that same way. Uh, well, I think it's a pretty common trope that when somebody gives burial rights to either their enemy or a lowly figure of some kind, um, that that is a way to kind of show their nobility and that, that they are of a good moral fiber. And so I think that moment stood out to me. I was myself still playing a game of I think it's the uh, Aes Sedai that is forcing these so so while i do think these are probably two who acted traitorously i think they were innocent is is where i my mind yeah. was and so i was glad to see that they were given this burial and you know um one one of the things that's fun about fantasy cultures is when you really like 
dig them out and give them a full culture and, and build yeah. them out, I should say. And so the fact that we get just this little touch of the Shinar and believing that, you know, it was it was a very avatar thing that they were back yeah. to uh to nature and they should also don't watch Bad Batch this week. Uh if you are not a fan of Avatar, I would I, all right. I did was think of you. I was like, oh no. Um but uh yeah it was just that kind of this nice touch. Let's learn a little bit more about them and about what they believe. Um I think again the power of having a big continent like this is that we can see all these customs and understand people through them. And that is fun. I mean it's not always the most exciting reason but it's fun to kind of be able to map out peoples and cultures in your mind. Yeah, and I really appreciate the way that Robert Jordan gives us really kind of specific pieces of culture rather than telling us what overall trends are. One of the things that I've seen in a lot of fantasy books is they kind of fall into the tell-don't-show thing when it comes to culture, right? They are just describing the way that cultures operate. And Robert Jordan is like, no, I'm not going to tell you anything about Shinar and culture. I'm going to give you three really weird details. They say peace and sword. <laughs> They say the mother is the earth and they get buried with no coffins. Do with that what you will. And I think you end up filling some of those gaps in yourself in a way that is really effective and kind of feels like what you do when you hear about a new culture in the real world. And it almost like keeps the gaps small enough and specific enough that your brain treats it as real in a way that it doesn't when you just get a deluge of information Wikipedia style. And I think that happens all too often in fantasy. Yeah, I think that's a really astute observation that this prevents them from being fully othered. They might be completely different in every way, but they just feel like they're, you know, Shinarans. They're just like us, and <laughs> except for these small little quirks. Uh, so I think that that is absolutely right, as as you observed it. Um, you know, and and one of the other kind of trends here that I was trying to put into that web in some ways is, uh, you know, I'm still curious about uh, Hurin, Hurin, Hurin. Uh, Hurin is how I've always said it. Hurin, the sniffer. And um, like this power and where it comes from, it's it's not really expanded upon too much here. But the idea that he could really sense that in all these places, violence had occurred, but not killing. And while we get yeah. a little bit of that filled in next time, I think it's, really clear that while these Shinaran have a lot of experience with dark friends and Trollocs and all of this, there's something weirder going on here. And, and again, that kind of ominous feeling of we still don't know why it's so bad, but something is much more bad this time permeated this. Yeah. And I think the only reason that this doesn't kind of stand out as a really big kind of juicy mystery to me is just I read it knowing that literally in the next chapter we're kind of going to get confirmation <laughs> the big scary thing is Pat and Fane and so um, I think you're exactly right that is the interesting intriguing detail here and so it's in, in, interesting to me that Robert Jordan again pulls the I'm just going to immediately pull the rug out and tell you the answer to the mystery card right it feels like the next chapter resolves two-thirds of the things that pop up in this chapter oddly and that's an odd choice for Robert Jordan to make. Um, and this is kind of going forward a little bit in terms of thinking about the next chapter. But now looking back on it, do you feel like a lot of this setup is kind of wasted because we find the answer so soon? Or is it intriguing and then kind of moves you on to the next thing? 
I want to see what you say if I misread the next chapter a little bit. But uh, I will say I left the next chapter kind of like, okay, check those set of boxes. But I think this bigger, weirder thing is going on. And so especially if I'm correct that there's kind of a bigger, weirder thing going on, then I kind of still see it all as building up and giving you just enough to keep you unraveling it. So I, I guess I will say I did not read the next chapter as solving these, certainly adding yeah. details, certainly filling it in. And so I think that just made me feel like, okay, um, I want to see more of this and figure more of this out. But, um, and you I know, think, me, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, I think this may just be different ways of kind of conceptualizing the mystery where I was kind of thinking of it as the mystery of what is the scary thing is kind of resolved. We think it's probably pad and fame. Um, but in terms of like you're saying, what is the overarching objective? What is causing pad and fame to do this? How in the world did he go from being a random dude to this scary those are all mysteries that I think are deepening and we can look into. So I think it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, I think we're fighting and we're, one of us is smart and one is dumb and we shouldn't let this drop. Um, you know, let's meet halfway between our houses with sharpened sticks and settle this. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, and then I guess the, the pinning of the, the mere draw or the, the fade, that just really what seemed to me a reminder that again we've leveled up right that yeah. that we are now dealing with stronger forces and like you're saying that's kind of answered in the next chapter of who that is but i think to i think it very much again kind of felt like um fellowship of the rings and then two towers it's like no things are much worse and things are going to be yeah. much more serious whereas before yeah there would be a little army here or there you'd confront a small group like we've got massive things going on that are are beyond your your kind of locality so yeah. um so it made me excited to keep reading uh i can't say i have much more i guess I, we didn't men- we didn't talk much about the woman yeah, I've got three really little things. Yeah, uh, go for it. So number one is just, I think we had a couple of interesting interpersonal moments at the beginning of the chapter. So especially, I think, the discussion with Rand and Perrin and Matt and Ingtar about um, Rand's parentage is really interesting because we kind of are still doing the Rand, Perrin, Matt teenage angst thing Mm. while also kind of reintroducing and slightly interrogating the question of Rand's parentage. Um, To me, what's interesting there is those two things overlapping. I'm curious what you pulled out of that scene, if anything, other than this feels like recap of the fight and the the kind of mystery of Rand. Uh, It felt very much like one of those moments where like, look, 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 we can make fun of our friend, but you don't get to make fun of our friend. And like when there's an exterior threat, they're going to kind of drop their drama and their hesitations and stand by each other in a a stronger way is at least is how I read that moment. And, um, you know, I I think, again, because we haven't seen that much about the Aiel, it's really hard to decide whose prejudices are correct in some ways. Like, are they right to be afraid of him because he has this blood? We, you know, I know we've gotten quite a few details about them over time and and kind of the history in the war, but it doesn't feel to me like um, we've gotten enough to decide their, the, the the uno is wrong or yeah you know either way no totally and i think that's that's where we're at in terms of this mystery it's just something kind of worth highlighting we at least have the context of the pieces being put together by someone other than the podcasters at this point which is is worth noting 
Um, number two, you called it exactly. I wanted to at least acknowledge the fact that Uno, considered widely to be one of the most reliable, um, sees a woman in the window of both cities. And we see, I think it's at the very beginning of the next chapter, um, notes that he is convinced it was the same woman in both right. places. Um, so this at this point, I think, is just a you know, throwaway detail. But I was curious if you have either any kind of thoughts on this or any wild guesses about where we may be going. Uh, you know, it felt like that kind of detail you throw into a horror movie, you would even use the same frames again, almost, yeah. and, and see that same footage um, where... Like, of course, I was like, well, that's meaningful because everybody dismissed it. So it's like, OK, so it's real. And he's seeing something or he's witnessing something. Yeah. Um, and yet it didn't feel like a kind of magic we know yet. So if this is not a literal woman, if this is something else, um, yeah. I don't know. Is it a figure who's able to to watch? Is it, you know, a spell or residue from magic, which I think is probably kind of the third thing you're going to talk to us about. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there is more to this picture that we don't have yet. Yeah. And I think you are exactly calling what number three on my list is. We need to talk about the same scene four times with increasingly more flies in between. Um, I don't want to say too horribly much here because i'd love to get your unfiltered opinion what in the world do you make of this page and a half of lovecraftian horror in the midst of all of the what else is going on i had a kind of i mean if we're being honest a hole of a dm once in dungeons and dragons lead us through a one shot where we went into uh i believe it was a homestead that had uh, a time loop happening and we had to uh, live, die, repeat slash edge of tomorrow. What was going on there uh, until time repeated on us and came back. And so all that came to mind was that. And, and yeah. of course that was Tyler, my DM. Uh, so that was immediately. It's like, Oh, I've been here. I, I know this type of uh, deal. Um, I did want to credit Robert Jordan in that it was fun to read because it was literally the same words. And yeah. that was such the right call because I think if it hadn't been, I wouldn't have registered it almost like if it had been a roughly the same description again, maybe we're learning I'm a bad reader, but that I wouldn't have quite been there. And then I'm like, yeah. wait, this is the same exact paragraph again. So I think that was really clever. Uh, if you're not talking, I will say it's not Rand going mad because that's where he lands almost immediately. He's like, oh, I must be crazy. Time to gentle me. Uh, it has to be something real. And it, I guess to me, then the question is, is this the residue of what happened there, right? Is it like right. something happened in that space and Rand is sensing the after effects or is this kind of a new power of his manifesting? We don't know a lot about the Sidar. Sidin. Sidin. Dang it. I, I had nope. a 50-50 shot. Yeah. We don't know a lot about the male one. Correct. Sidar. Yeah. Sidin. Sidin. Sidin is the Sidin. male one. Okay. Uh, we don't know a lot about the male one. So could there be a kind of power here? We do know there's foretelling on the other side. Uh, and so could this be kind of almost uh you know the the inverse of that right and that's not exactly how we've seen the powers work here but could that be um it reminded me in star wars it got in weird expanded universe stuff i think this technically made it into the clone wars there's a, a force power where you pick things up and you can sense the like where oh, that yeah. object has been and i think they call it psychometry in in that 
And so it felt a little like that too. Like he's sensing something that, I mean, he wasn't holding an object, but he was yeah. sensing what had occurred there and could kind of read it in the space. Uh, the flies naturally make me assume it's a darkness that's yeah. infecting him. Yeah, I mean, I will say I actually had kind of the opposite reaction. I initially yeah. uh, had the kind of I'm with Rand uh, when I read this for the first time. I was like, this feels like madness. I'm curious if this is how we're going to be going. Like Lovecrafty madness descriptions um, is is an interesting potential prospect. Um, the only other thing that I want to point out about this is the end of the sequence right because the the sequence gets pretty loopy right it is the exact same paragraph and then a few flies and then the exact same paragraph and a lot of flies and then the exact same paragraph and way too many flies and then eventually rand breaks out of the loop by going into the flame in the void and embracing the light that he finds there and on first read, I think that's just like maybe he was focusing, maybe he was doing, you know, something. But the very next chapter ends with Rand going to sleep and there being an odd light in the void. So I think there may be something with the resonance of these two moments. I at least would mm. love to get your thought. What do you think is going on with Rand kind of entering the flame in the void and there being this kind of new light there that hadn't been previously? Uh, I I interpret his increasing struggles with what used to give him comfort to just be that he's more unsettled. It mm -hmm. didn't quite read as madness to me still. Um, it was much more like, um, you know, like when you are under pressure at your job and you're like, nope, I'm so stressed out. None of this works anymore. Right. Like yep. these things used to work. I could, you know, lay in bed and count backwards from a hundred and I'd always be asleep. But now it's like, nope, it's, it's, uh, the concerns leveled up and my tactics don't work anymore. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that is a little more interesting when you remember that it was his dad's tactic, yeah. right. To, to do that. So is this something where, he's now in a deeper part of himself or is that the kind of approach of the deeper part of himself, uh, that other light or something that uh, is beyond who he once was and this new identity he seems to be forming. I mean, I, I was recalling this isn't tied to a specific moment, but so much of the end of the last book, we are like, he's totally different now and nobody senses it. Yeah. And yet that hasn't come to pass. So if he did change in that moment, he's very slow to learn that new version of himself, or uh, perhaps it wasn't as kind of extreme or all consuming as we thought it was during that yeah. last part of the last book. Well, and I think that this is why, and I, I mentioned this in the last episode, why the first half of The Great Hunt is my least favorite section of any Wheel of Time book. And it's exactly because of that. I think Robert Jordan, what makes me love this series so much is when characters change. And then in the next book, you get to see the impact of that change. And this feels like the one big time in this series where we have a big character climax moment and then the character regresses by the beginning of the next book. And so it's not just we're stuck in Rand's head so much this book. It's that we're stuck in the same Rand's head. And I think we're both kind of looking for a little bit more growth from that character than what Robert Jordan is offering us. And maybe that's just because he's a teenager and teenagers don't grow up when they're faced with struggle because they're teenagers, but it's a little frustrating as a reader. I want to see that character evolve after having as big of a set of revelations as he's had in the last, you know, three, 400 pages we've read of him. Um, 
yeah, I don't love this section of the book. Unless you have anything else to add, we can jump into chapter 11, Glimmers of the Pattern. I'll just note in, in light of what you just said, I think if there was a cynical part of me, I'd be like, well, that's what you have to do when it's 11 books instead of three, right? You got to slow your play, your pace. Sorry, 14 books instead of three. Um, so I do feel a little of that, but I, I still, uh, Robert Jordan hasn't betrayed my trust yet. So yeah. yeah, let's talk about the pattern. Let's talk about the glimmer. Absolutely. So this chapter, which I think is very poorly named, Glimmers of the Pattern, uh, it begins with the group making camp the day after the events of, you know, the fade being strung up and all of the craziness with the flies. Um, Uno insists that he saw the same woman in both areas. Um, Rand is asking about the village and is trying to get Ingtar to kind of describe what exactly was going on, what he thinks could have done that to a fade. And at this point, Ingtar reveals that Moraine had given him a package uh, to provide to Rand the first time that they were south of the River Aranin, which is today. Um, Rand takes that package, but before he can open it, Ingtar then tells him, in addition to that, uh, Ingtar was told uh, officially by Lord Aglemar, but with Moraine in the room, that Rand is now the second in command of the group, and that if anything happens to Ingtar, Rand will be the one who takes over. Um, Rand asks, uh, who knows this? And Ingtar says, everyone in the group does. Um, and basically, Rand tries to reject that, and Ingtar says, no, I was really doubtful at first, but I think you're the kind of person who could take on this kind of leadership role and leaves him. Um, at this point, Rand checks to see whether anyone is looking. No one is. He opens Moraine's package, and it is the Banner of the Dragon. Um, he somehow didn't see that both Matt and Perrin were kind of looking, and they noticed <laughs> the uh, the banner. Um, initially, Matt is kind of accusatory, thinking that this is yet another thing that he has done to kind of puff himself up. But Rand says that it was Moraine. He explains that he is potentially being put up as what he still thinks of as a false dragon. And while Matt is still upset, Perrin is pretty quickly upset or kind of quickly accepting and um, more or less talks Matt eventually into being, you know, willing to, you know, forgive Rand, mostly once Rand says that he came on the trip primarily to get the dagger back for Matt. Um, the three kind of reconcile, and eventually we get to the point where both Matt and Perrin know that Rand can channel, is the dragon reborn, and both of them give him advice. Matt's basically being give up, and Perrin's being run, run really, really far away. Um uh, <laughs> At this point, uh, Rand makes his way back into the camp proper. He stores the banner where no one is going to see it. And then Hurin, Loyal, and him all lay down around what looks to be some sort of wreck. It's a piece of stone with carving in it that Loyal is interested in and says in the morning he wants to investigate the markings on it. Um, Rand then falls asleep. And as we mentioned before, he tries to form the flame and void. And there is an odd, eerie light. Um, we then get get a brief POV from Padden Fane, which I jotted down as Fane is scary, Trollocs eat the people, Fane is really scary. Those <laughs> are my notes. Uh, glimmers of the pattern. I am not sure what glimmers of what pattern we were viewing, but otherwise, actually a relatively engaging chapter. I'd rather have this kind of character discussion than the they went there and then there and then there from the previous chapter. What were your thoughts here? 
Uh, well, I will say, because you made fun of the chapter name, I am also right now reading Chuck Wendig's uh, Wanderers book, which is like 2019. It's a, it's a pretty cool. It's it's like The Stand. If you read Stephen okay. King's The Stand, it's it's kind of that kind of uh, epic thing. Um, and I had to read a Well, I, I just got to a chapter today called The Shimmer. So I, I read a chapter okay. called The Glimmer and <laughs> or Glimmers and The Shimmer today, uh, which really made me laugh. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think even just listening to your synopsis, you made those interactions a little more engaging than I found them. I think I kind of cruised through them in yeah. some ways, kind of being like, oh, these mostly confirm what we already know. Uh, but the kind of resounding kind of thread, I guess, that really drew me in is this fact that um, Rand is now really wondering how much agency he has and how much is he being manipulated? And we yeah. had a similar discussion about the boatman uh, at the end of the last episode where it's like, yeah, if we're, if, if you are getting played so much that you're on like the third or fourth level of, but did they know that I would know that they would know? Yeah. Um, I think you're just so lost that you should just assume everything you're doing is controlled. Um, and I think yeah. that's where I feel like on on Rand, um, you know, yes, he still has his agency. He's making these choices, but Moraine has seen all them coming. He's not manipulated, but he's expected, I think, and is how yeah. I'd sum that up. Yeah, I as you said that, it actually made me think of Rick and Morty, which I know is maybe not the ideal show to be bringing up at this point. Ooh, Glad Justin yeah. <laughs> Roiland is gone. Uh, but uh, there was the episode they did with Heistatron, and the like. conclusion of that episode is just Rick and Heistatron shouting at each other, but I made you do that, but I made you do that. <laughs> but I, that's kind of what this feels like where Rand is, right? At some point, if the fates are pushing you in one direction and the Aes Sedai are pushing you in another and the Dark One is pushing you in another direction. Just go with the flow. You can't compete. You can't control things at that yeah. point. Like It doesn't matter who predicted or made what. Do what you can with what you have. And so to me, this is really interesting for Rand because he is so concerned with who is pushing him to do things I think that's why he's being pushed so easily. Is is that the mm. read you have, or do you kind of see something else in what's going on here? No, I I think that is the read I have, and he, he I mean, it it is still trying to figure out how much of Rand is still the naive shepherd, right? And yeah. and how much something else is is taking over. And my stab at interpreting the title would be that he is seeing glimmers of the pattern, not that we are being shared with That's them. Fair. I think I think we all kind of know where this is headed because when you are introduced to a character that has a mythic kind of destiny, yeah. you're just going to keep moving towards that mythic destiny. Now, it might surprise us when we get there. I'm not saying everything is predictable here, right. but it's like we know he's moving forward with this and he's still kind of piecing together that there is not as much choice as he might think. Um, and everybody else seems to think he's going to that destiny. So he should, um, you know, what, what remains interesting to me is, is it's, you know, the pattern, but also the Taveran. Yeah. It's like, you are the, you experience the pattern, but you can warp the pattern. And yeah. it is usually language closer to warp than change, right? Yeah. Than break the pattern. So I think to think about that, you know, um, again, the as as the pattern comes together, there is some chance and there is some agency there, but um, it's going to largely 
you know, and warping in, in a, I'm working through the metaphor in my head, but warping within a piece of weaving usually means that the pattern constricts or expands. Yeah. It still has the same pattern. Um, I think of when they make you do yarn in uh, yarn weavings in art class in yeah. elementary school, you get the kid who looks like it's an hourglass shape and you're like, well, you just got a little too excited there in the middle and pulled it really tight. And then you came back out. Um, and that's the kind of warping I see in this metaphor that like, it's yeah. going to still be red and blue striped all the way through. You can just pull it a little bit here and there. Well, and I think that that metaphor works really well in the sense that Taviran we have been described as kind of both allowing you to warp the pattern in some cases, but also kind of having other places where the pattern constrains you, right? It's it's a little bit of both simultaneously. And so I like that kind of metaphor of some places it's tight, some places it's loose, right? There are spots where Rand has full freedom to choose what he's doing, and other places there is clearly none. Um, and I think the, the interesting thing that's happening here is it feels like a lot of the choices that Rand would have had the choice to kind of actually change something, either Moraine or the Merlin or someone is making those choices for him. And so I think he's right now feeling all of the constraint of Taviran and none of the freedom. Um, yeah. And, and you know, this confrontation with Matt and Perrin just feels that way, too, that they see that he should have more choices and he doesn't right yep. it's like run away you should do this you should do that. and and again it's it's connected to that discussion in the in the last chapter where it's like they still want to believe he's their friend even though every yeah. sign stacking up is that he's no longer just their friend or he's he's become something more and so i think a lot of those discussions here i i think i had a more of a tendency to yada 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 because in my head, I'm going, you're losing your friend. And, you know, yeah. it's it's great that you're all working together to to achieve this kind of similar goal at the moment, getting the dagger, getting the horn. Um, but yeah, he's got he's got cool new threads now and he's got uh, a banner and he's going to use them eventually. I mean, you know, Chekhov's banner here that that he wouldn't have it if it didn't matter eventually. So so I, I that's not to undermine that. And I think there was good emotion and good writing in them. Yeah. But it really is like my mind is already so far beyond these boys that it's like get on with it guys like figure out that the patterns moved on without you yeah i am largely in the same place i feel like this is kind of one of those moments that needs to be there for kind of setting up and getting people in the right place but it's not the most fun to be reading that being said there is one moment in here that really shone for me which is just how immediately matt is like oh that makes sense we're best friends again right i have been friends <laughs> with 13 year old boys you get in really intense fights that end in four seconds and that rang very true to me uh was there anything else in these kind of early interpersonal matt and perrin discussions that jumped out at you um if not i think i would just like to jump way to the end of the chapter and say like what what is sleepy time rock that we are next to? Did that ping anything mm. for you or did you have any thoughts about it? Um, I I mean, especially because Loyal was interested in it. It's like, well, it must be something meaningful. And certainly that he had uh, the knowledge of the gateways. Um, yeah. It's almost like I forgot the gateways and the kind of supernatural passage thing happened until right. he was thinking about the rock again. It's like, Oh, right. There was a moment where they went to another plane of existence and came yeah. back. Uh, but at the same time, 
we know that that place was also being corrupted. So it's not like that's yeah. a freedom or if it is something that gets used, it's it's not going to come without a cost as a part of that. So my impression was that, you know, it wasn't going to be something that Loya, the Ogier, sorry, I couldn't think yeah. of the word, uh, the Ogier had created like so many of the other works, yeah. but it is something that is probably from that age or from that period that would spark Loyal's interest. Yeah, and I think that identifying it as sparking his interest because it is kind of old is really interesting because we've gotten a number of other examples of that throughout these chapters, right? In the previous chapter, we had discussion about how the place they're passing through now used to be an ancient kingdom and now is like unincorporated, basically. Um, in this chapter, there's also a discussion about the um, pillar that was supposed to be put up for uh, Arthur Hawkwing's victory that was taken down after he fell. And now we've got this. And so there's something really interesting, I think, about a place where that deep time still exists, even though in shallow time land, it's basically just empty space. And so mm. all of these kind of relics being around what is more or less empty space is is an interesting setting, I feel, although that is kind of all I get out of this. Any thoughts it, on that motif? It's just Lord of the Rings again to me, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and I thought the films did this really well where they're like walking and there's all these old ruins and they're like, yeah, that's the Sikaboo of Dagbagaba. And everybody's like, yes, oh yes, mm. Gaba Gaba, right? And so here you have the characters don't know what these things are called or why they're there or who made them, but you do get a sense that they were once really important. And so yeah. I, I'm excited to learn more about that. I don't think in the next chapter, I think I spied that we're headed into somebody else's head for a little while. But when we return. <laughs> Bless you, anyone but Rand for only one chapter, unfortunately. Um, the last thing that we have in this chapter is not in Rand's head. Mm. Adden Fane is very, very scary. Seems to be the extent of my notes. Um, was there anything in here that stood out to you? Um, this is obviously the first time we've gotten anything remotely close to insight into this character. So as a first time reader, I'm just curious what jumped out at you or how you feel about this character three pages into his POV. Sure. So I don't know if I'm wildly speculating or this is as Robert Jordan has done before, made me like figure something out. I'm like, I got it. And he, I was supposed to right? like, uh, what is there is. So what stood out to me in the Padden Fane is yes, he's really scary. He's in control, which um, was not necessarily expected until that was revealed. Yeah. But what became clear to me when he was describing the path he went on is whoever was Padden Fane followed the boys into Shador Mord. Shadar Lagoth. Shadar Lagoth. So yeah. bad with these names. Uh, Shadar Lagoth. And that was the moment of some change. And so yeah. to me, it felt like, um, again, whether I was piecing this together or Robert George telling me straight out and I'm just like, I know it's exactly what he said. Um, but it felt to me that that is the moment Pat and Fane got occupied by one of these spirits, one of these yeah. others that we then saw at the end of the first book, surprise Moraine. Again, uh, the only moment yep. Moraine got scared was she's like, what? Like, how and what? And so I don't, I, I assume this would be a third, not either of the two that we encountered, and that that third is now in control of Pat and Fane. And so when they're describing 
describing how Pat and Fane is in control of the group and he's essentially telling them to break their orders, right? That they right. wanted to go back. This new darker force is pushing them on yeah. and that just felt like a complete wild card to me. Yeah, and I think that this is the the only piece in there that I am curious to kind of interrogate is I 100% agree this feels like there is some sort of foreign outside force that arrived at Shadar Lagoth and changed the game for whatever Padden Fane is or was. And I think um, it's another one of the forsaken, I think is the term yep. that we are, are looking for. Totally a reasonable, you know, assumption, guess. The only other thing that I would also consider here is as you're saying, we're convincing these dark friends to break their orders. It seems like the conflict was specifically between Fane and the Merge Rail. And we, at least in the beginning of this book and the end of last book, have seen Merge Rail directly kind of answering to uh, the Forsaken, right? Either Baelzaman or one mm. or more of the Forsaken. And so that might either suggest that you're on the right track and it's one Forsaken kind of being in conflict with another, or this might be an indication of some sort of split where the Forsaken are now pitted against whatever force it is that has taken over Pad and Fane. I want to kind of keep both of those doors open while acknowledging I think you're putting all the pieces together in the right places and then there's one bit of kind of speculation within it. Mm, okay. I, I take that as a win. I'm going to let, yep, here's my chalkboard. W, got it. Uh, all set. Uh, and yeah, and that's cool. Um, You know, I was trying to think of the right comparison. It's not Gollum, but yeah. there are these stories where the heroes accidentally create the villain or the helper like on their way. And it's yeah. in the 11th hour that like suddenly it all comes together and you're like, oh crap. Like our real mistake was going to uh, Shadar Lagoth, not yeah. any of our other choices, like simply taking these things. And, you know, since we were talking about the pattern, that feels like they were on a pattern to go from A yeah. to B and they stepped out. They uh, bent the pattern into the shadow city. Yeah. And so all this uh, being mixed back in is not under the control of the Aes Sedai or of Baalzaman. It's just chaos. Um, the, uh, you know, we talked about Melville's weaving, how the baton is chance and the baton comes in at whatever angle. And I think this is the baton in the mix that this is not, this isn't going to go how we think it is based on the last time yeah, because and I of think this factor. And I think we mentioned this once before. Robert Jordan has kind of mentioned once or twice, even in very early interviews, that he kind of thought of Patton Fane specifically as that kind of the Joker in the deck, right? Throwing yeah. wrenches into everyone's plans. And we're seeing that right here, right? So far in this book, he has caused real problems for Moraine's plans and Aglemar's plans and Leandrin's plans and Amurdrail's plans. And that seems like a pretty wide group of people to piss off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is what I have for Glimmers of the Pattern. It's a relatively short chapter and fairly plot-centric. Um, where that leaves us is next week... We're giving you some relatively easy reading. I think you said, Greg, in your edition, it's only about 25 pages. We will be covering two chapters, chapter 12, Woven in the Pattern, and chapter 13, From Stone to Stone. So with those chapters in mind, I'm going to leave it to you, Greg, to take us out. Um, what are you looking forward to or anticipating, as we said, getting out of Ram's head, at least for one chapter? Yeah, I don't know, but I will say... 
<laughs> I just uh, in as you were talking, I flipped to 13 and I see that the uh, chapter icon is quite intriguing and maybe related to what we were just talking about prior to the Pat and Fane bit. So uh, that makes me most excited, having seen that small preview. Um, you know, I I think I know the next chapter is a naive chapter, so I'm excited to see where they're going. But uh, it it is a curious thing that I think when they split up the characters that just makes it all more compelling and you always want to read that return and that next bit of those characters it's something that always was effective for me in game of thrones when i was reading those books it's like oh uh well I'll, i'm gonna go to the bed at the end of the chapter oh it's an Arya chapter i gotta read a little more so i'm glad that you have me on a weekly schedule i am feeling a little juiced i think i might go right upstairs and, and knock out those 25 pages which isn't every time we we uh do an episode so that always i think is a compliment to to whatever we we talked about so uh we hope you do the same thing readers and we will see you next time to discuss it through the glass columns so ends another episode of through the glass columns we thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the wheel of time in our own sweet time this podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.